710 ESPN presents The Experience with Laverne Cusack, where we go beyond the play and focus on athletes, fans, events, and the biggest issues that inspire and shape our lives. Here's the host of The Experience, Laverne Cusack. Laverne Cusack. Welcome to The Experience. Thank you so much for tuning in. For more podcasts or more information, please go to ESPNLA.com and go to the podcast page, The Experience page, and check out more podcasts. Today we're talking about This Ain't My Life with award-winning author Bilal Alaji. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I am so glad to be here and honored as well. So tell us how you first started off uh, being a writer. Well, um, I've always had writing uh, abilities, but I never really saw myself uh, writing in a capacity of, you know, a professional in the literary world. You know, I've I uh, obtained my MBA and I was writing a lot of proposals and grants and um, business plans. And I've always had a really, really good writing style. And all of my professors, teachers, all the way back to middle school have, have always told me how good of a writer I was. And I just have a wonderful way of articulating and expressing my feelings on paper. But again, none of that translated into me even believing in myself enough to put it into book form. And so as I went through some trials in my own life and I hit some really dark patches and some places that I never thought that I would be, it kind of forced me to bring my skill set out and to use my voice. Um, I will say this, too. I, I um, was in the music industry as a rap artist, so I used my writing musically, but I never really thought about you know, being in a literary world and taking um, my personal life and putting it out on front street so that others could learn and be inspired. And so when I hit these moments in my life that, that really put me in these deep, you know, points of, of almost, you know, no return, I was able to come out of that by using my writing. And from there, it kind of just took a life of its own. It became very therapeutic. I found a, a beautiful voice and um, I knew that this was something um, that I was destined to do and to use this voice to uh, inspire and help heal others. What was the feeling behind you when you were like, this is what I'm destined to do? I think for me, I've always had this, this feeling about, I, I talk about it in the actual prelude of the book, how um, I state how there was always something compelling me towards greatness. And the compelling that I was feeling was, was you know, large part entrepreneurial. But I had so many skills and so many things like I, I was a good dancer. I was a good rapper. I was good at so many things that, you know, I didn't know what that one thing was, mm -hmm. if, even if it is one thing. And so I just kind of throughout different stages of my life, I found bright spots. And when I hit so many lows, that's when it was like, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on? And writing became, you know, cathartic for me. It became like this, this wonderful blessing to be able to kind of almost journalize what's happening and, and use it as a way of saying, wow, you know, 
look at this and then look at this and they became patterns and then the patterns became a a wide a wide um an eye opening moment for me to be like you know look what happened to you mm-hmm. you know and if you can change these situations and change you know the way that you're thinking and change how you're feeling about it matter of fact how were you feeling about it and then all of that just constituted to like it was like, man, of all these years, it just compiled into a story. And I was like, look at this. And I was like, I just felt, you know, instinctively and intuitively, I felt that this right now was the moment, you know, because I know timing is everything. And I just saw how men and um, people in a black community, um, especially in a black community, in the black community, people are always silent about a lot of things that happen in their lives. Um, and I'm talking on a very um, broad perspective, like this is a micro issue, mm-hmm. excuse me, macro issue. This is like um, as far as rape is concerned, as far as mental mental illness is concerned, as far as, um, you know, single parent homes and all of these very broad issues are really never discussed in the black community. And on top of that, with my religion, um, I grew up being a Muslim. Even more so, you're adding another layer of silence on top of um, how I was raised and brought up. And so I used the story to, to just open these barriers, open the door and, and welcome people into the black Muslim experience or, you know, i.e. Muslim experience to welcome people into the black community. And I'm not talking about with um, the pretense of it being a drug dealer story or it being about, you know, all of the stereotypes that are within black communities. This is just a regular black male telling his story about growing up in middle-class America and what he experienced, how, you know, all of these things translate into a story of, you know, a champion, someone who right. just refused to give up, someone who always saw the silver lining and used his faith and all of these these learning lessons that he went through in life to overcome all of his obstacles. Bilal, like uh, I was talking last week with a friend. We were talking about how, you know, your life could be going so great. And please let me know if the, if I'm interpreting this correctly. You're talking about how your life is going great. You know, you're getting gigs. You're, you know, you're using all of you. And then rough patches started happening. When those rough patch patches started happening... Was it devastating for you or did it put you back saying, wait, what's going on? Why are these things happening? It was definitely, um, I would say, the uh, the first thing that you said, you know, and, you know, it was a little combination of both because for me, I kind of got led on a wrong path by my own father. My own father, um, within the story, you get to see within the first two two chapters of the story, how my father, who was my hero, he, he let me down in a lot of ways. And then on top of that, he led me down a very, very bad path. And that bad path that he led me down pretty, pretty much defined a lot of where my life would start, you know? So as a, as a young teenager being told by your father that, you know, you should drop out of school and, um, 
you know, don't pursue your high school diploma and get your GED. Then, you, you know, my father tells me uh, after that incident, I actually dropped out of school. Then, you know, I have a child at a very early age. He tells me to marry the woman that um I was having this child by. It just pretty much defined how my life was getting ready to start off without me even really being an active participant. And so I started out in a web mm-hmm. and I had to kind of slowly unravel this web until I began to define what it is that I wanted. And, you know, because he was my hero, it hurt even more. You know, it was like, why did my hero, you know, put me down this path? Why did my hero do this? So, of course, I put a lot of blame on him. I began to um, be very angry and bitter about, you know, what was happening with my life. But at the same time, I was always willing to take charge of it. But I didn't know how. I didn't have the answers. I didn't have any guides and mentors. It was very confusing. But at the same time, you know, I believe in the universe. I believe in God. I believe in higher powers and divinity. And they definitely stepped in. Not in the the way that I would have wanted, but it was most suiting for me. I mean, I can imagine that can that would be something that like my dad, of course, I'm going (laughs) to do what my dad says. You know, He's, he's my hero. So how did you deal with that heartbreak? I think for me, um, I had to come to a space where I had to actually take ownership of my life. And I think that's what everyone has to do. We we are all sent to this planet for joy, for um, peace. You know, we're here for the best, right? And that's why I, I knew that this title, This Ain't My Life, would resonate so much with a lot of people once they understood the connotation of it. Because if you're not taking ownership of it, that means that everyone else is pretty much guiding your path. Mm-hmm. And then that puts all the ownership on your influencers. All of your influencers become your target, your target of animosity, anger, betrayal. And so, you know, that leads to health problems. That leads to you having, um, you know, scapegoats such as, you know, um, vices, beer, alcohol, you know, cigarettes, weed. I chose to take more of that ownership and put it on myself and look look at myself and say, look, it's cool that those things happen to you. I mean, what happened happened, but where are you where are you now? What do you want to do now? Where do you want to go from here? What is the reality that you want to see? And when I began to ask myself those questions, it literally just took the chains of my father off of me. Hmm. It literally took the chains of any other influencers off of me. And I was able to, you know, reclaim and just take ownership of whatever it was within the vision that I had. I was able to own that and begin to build onto that vision. But how did you get to that point to be so self-actualized? I think that hitting my 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 lowest lowest um, was what did it for me. I, there was a time I talk about it in, uh, I believe it's chapter 14 of the book. I call it chapter triple darkness and triple darkness for me represented um, a, a place so dark that you can't see any light. And when it's that dark, you don't know whether you're up, down, left or right, because all you see is darkness. You're consumed by dark thoughts, dark feelings. You're consumed by anxiety and depression. And, you know, I wanted to kill myself. I didn't feel I was worthy enough to even be on this planet. Mm -hmm. I felt like, man, if all I was going to 
do is go through, um, you know, hard times, bad times, and, you know, be a letdown to myself and to others. I just, I didn't feel the need to be here anymore. And through that moment, through that time, that space that I was in, that's like when the most beautiful reconstruction began to happen for me. That's when I began to see little glimpses of light. I even talk about how I had a recurring dream. And in the dream, I was just in darkness. You know, it felt like I was in water, but I was so deep in the ocean that I couldn't see anything. I didn't know where I was. So if I started moving, I could have been going further down. I started moving it, so I just stayed still. And as I stayed still, panicking and, and, and not, you know, feeling good about what's going on with me, I'm like, man, this is it. There's there's nothing. As I begin to um just slowly feel the presence of God and feel the presence of love and warmth from a higher power, I would have this dream every day. And wow. then all of a sudden I started seeing um it was it was like I was floating up and you know as as you go through the, the the dark phases the light that you can see even this little speck of light it was brown at first and then it went from brown to kind of like this yellow then it went to green and then blue and as I as it got lighter and brighter I knew I was getting ready to come out the water mm-hmm. because I was seeing more light and the light that I was seeing was me surrendering. It was me letting a higher power assist in my dark, my darkness. It was allowing um, love, compassion, and forgiveness to come in. It was a, it was me um, not trying to um, take ownership of everything right. and just being at being in a place where I could let go. And I could be free and I could be carried. And I even remember having another dream where I was still in that water. And I actually remember uh, a big sea creature. I don't know if it was a whale or or some kind of, um, you know, um, it was really big, this creature. It was huge. Mm-hmm. could have been like a dragon. And I remember just being told to be still. Hmm. And it, and out of nowhere, this creature carries me out the water. And next thing I know, we're flying. And I get placed on land. And I know all of these these um, recurrent visions that I was having. Mm-hmm. I knew how important they were for my spirit and for my, my growth and development for where I needed to be and where I wanted to be in life. And these signs... I'm a believer that they come to everyone. You know, no one's no one's so special that they're the only to receive these messages. Everyone receives these messages, but not everyone is prepared to and understand them or interpret them mm-hmm. or be in a space where they can receive it properly. You know, a lot of people actually dismiss it and they call it weird or, oh, you won't believe what happened to me. But no, these are communications coming to you. These are things that are supposed to be taking you to your higher self. And I think for anyone who's listening to this, who have gone through hard times, hardships, you may be going through it right now. Just know that through every hardship, there's always a lesson. There's something you were supposed to get out of it. There's something that is driving you 
to become your better self. And I think that because we don't look at it that way, we always look at it in its worst connotation that we begin to wallow more in it. And whenever you wallow more in something with the universe, it brings you more. And it begins to have like a compounding effect because it believes that's what you want. This is your experience and your experience could be whatever you want to make it. But if you're really looking for your higher self, you're looking for the highest, best person you could be. It starts with you desiring to be higher. And that's what happened with me. I desired better. I desired to be within the highest space of myself. And so the universe came to my rescue and they began to develop me. I began to read books. I began to channel my energy and study um, metaphysics and spirituality. I began to just use all of the tools that were available to me to build myself up into this better person. Mm-hmm. Bilal, you talked about vulnerability. Can you talk about when you were growing up, the relationships you had with other kids of color, was it similar to yours? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there, I mean, there are some nuances that are very different because, you know, I grew up very sheltered because my parents were Muslim. Um, they really didn't care for us being around um, others who weren't of the same faith. And so I talk about in the book how I experienced um, growing up in a Muslim school. Like I was homeschooled for a very long time. And so um, that prevented me from having peer relationships. So, of course, that that would make me awkward. That would make me non-social. Um, and that changes your perspective of how you would deal with others who don't share your, uh, you know, your faith, your philosophy or ideologies. But as I, as you know, we had some circumstances that happened in our family, one being my um, my baby sister died unexpectedly. And that began to be the, the the thread that began to tear the family dynamic apart. My parents was never really able to recover from the loss of the child from a infant, um, infant crib death. So mm-hmm. now I'm going into public school and my father is not in the house as much. And, you know, everything that I thought, everything that I was exposed to, is now being challenged. And I'm dealing with um, children who have a whole different perspective on how they deal with the world, how they deal with the higher power. And from there, you know, I begin to form, you know, opinions and I begin to make judgments about, you know, my peers. But the reality was from a social perspective, we were all going through the same thing. Right. They were all having uh, fathers who weren't in the home. They were all having single parent mothers. They were all, de- we were all dealing with the same social um, issues. It was just not talked you know, about. One of my friends was Jehovah Witness. I had another friend who was Baptist. I had another friend. So because we may have had different ideological um, understandings and we call God a little differently, whether it was Jehovah or Yahweh or, you know, just God or Allah, it didn't matter. The social issue within the black community was all the same. Right. But to get to the point where you're able to talk about it, did that ever come about? 
Well, as I yeah, I would say I I did more um I did more discussing those issues when I was probably like in my twenties. In my twenties, it was so prevalent and. You know, as I was playing basketball with the guys and working out and, you know, we're dealing with different women and, you know, I'm going through my relationship problems. That's when we begin to really delve a lot deeper into, you know, what was happening to us and in our community and how we all had these these very same issues going on. And it was it was very eye opening to see that. And you know what was so crazy? It wasn't even about age. Mm-hmm. Age wasn't even a factor. Like I could be talking to an older guy and talking to a younger guy, and we would literally be talking about the same issue. And that's when I began to realize, like, wow, this is a problem. Right. And I mean, I'm going in and out of court. I'm fighting for custody of my kids. Like there's so much talked about in this book. And I'm hearing the same stories from guys in the community, guys that I'm meeting, you know, guys that are my friends, they're having the same issues. Oh, you're going to court for child support too? What does she do to you? And it was like, yo, I can't believe this, man. She's trying to get all my money. And it was like, what? Like, I'm going through the same thing. And, you know, that this why, like, I really realized, I was like, God really chose me to utilize my experience and my skill set to be a voice and to get out there and to educate and use my story as a platform to help change. And the only way that change was going to come was through, you know, enlightenment. It had to be through education. It had to be through, you know, breaking the barriers of ignorance. And I mean, not only just the court system, I saw how a lot of um, black males were going through the criminal system. You know, I even um, had a brush, you know, with the criminal system as well as a result of my relationship. So I saw how easy it was for all of these things to spiral out. And you know why? What was the premise behind a lot of this? What's that? The premise was that we weren't talking. Mm. So I noticed a lot of us were dealing like we would talk about certain things, but then certain other things were off limits. And you know why? Because men perceive it as a weakness right where women look at it as oh you know we're helping one another i need to get this off my chest you guys are so much more open about what's going on in your lives you know vulnerability is not really a big thing with women it's like that's what y'all do you know and i just think we as men we need to pull a chapter out of you guys book you know we need to be a little bit more um understanding of our sense of our uh, female side of us and we need to be able to be more vocal with each other and with others so that we can grow better and be, you know, better men in society. Because the next generation under us, if we're not talking and we don't share these experiences, they're just going to go through the same same ones and then they're just going to try to figure it out. And that's not the best way to do it, because a lot of the issues that are happening with men, they're not new stories. They're just recurring stories that happen in a little different way. Right, right. What is that? Repeating the same dynamic, like the same dynamic family, but just in your life over and over and over again. It gets passed down and then it gets passed down and it gets That's passed right. down. It becomes generational. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, this is 710 ESPN LA. I'm Laferne Cusack speaking with author Bilal Alaji, and he has a book 
out that you can get now. This ain't my life. Where can we get this book? That's right. You get out, get the book. You can get it on Amazon. It's offered in every format you could think of. Um, it's even an audio book. I narrate the book. Awesome. Um, it's really, really awesome. I think you'll love hearing uh, the narration of the book. It's very colorful. You can also get it out on the website, www.bilalalaji.com. I'll spell it out for you. That's B-I-L-A-L-A-L-A-J-I.com. Awesome. And it's also offered through other retailers such as Barnes & Noble. Anywhere you find books online or in stores, it's available. With what you're doing now, you empower young men right now. How are you able to communicate with them that allows them to be vulnerable? I guess I can say that. That's the key right now because um, men are not used to that. So this is a new phase for men. It's like we're we're ushering into a new paradigm shift where men have to now take on a new skill set. And there's for many years, I mean, if you think all the way back to when Burt Reynolds and and certain other Rock Hudson and all of these actors were on TV, it was all about being macho. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, it you know, we were really ingrained with machismo as as the Latin people would say. And this this machoism, you know, even going back to Randy Macho Man Savage and Hulk Hogan and all of these 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 uh, heroes of ours, they personified a certain way for men to be, even when things are not going well, even when men are failing, even when men are in dark areas. This machoism you know i remember watching certain movies and it was like men don't cry you know mm -hmm. and and we were literally told you can't do that and it was to our own demise because when do you cry crying is a human element crying helps to to purge whatever feeling you're going through you need to get these things out and so what little boys and young men were doing and are still doing is like you said earlier, they're acting out mm -hmm. there. These, you know, psychologists would tell us if we, if we were all to get therapy, they would tell us, they would say, you know, you're using this as a scapegoat. You're actually um, lashing out because you're crying out for help. And you would say, no, I'm not. And you know, as you get to talk right. about your issues, <laughs> you'll find out that, yeah, you really were mad because you can't see your child as often as you would like. You're really mad because you're paying child support and you can't really pay your rent. And you have to find a way to be more amicable with your, well, amicable with your, your ex-partner. Um, there are so many dynamics of what happens to men as a result of not being good communicators and not being in touch with their feelings that um, it spirals into um, really destruction. Right. And the male doesn't understand why this is happening. And they, we really, I, would, I have to include myself, we really didn't understand how women recoup, y'all recover so well. But it was just these simple techniques that you guys are using that helps you get over, you know, some of these humps. Do you fully get over a lot of these things? You know, that's, you know, speculative. Mm -hmm. But 
the underlying uh, tone here is that at least you're giving yourself a chance. At least you're taking the proper steps to, to move on properly. For most men, they think moving on is, okay, I'm not with this woman, and so I'll just hurry up, get another woman, move somewhere else, get another house, get another car, and you will think that he's doing a lot better. You will think that he feels better about himself. But the reality is he he's still not over his last situation. He's still dealing with, you know, a lot of residue of what he was going through before. And so for me, I'm just working on changing that narrative. I'm working slowly to help enter into men's minds a new perspective and being able to help them see that my opening line in in my prelude, the last line that I say is, I hope we will all see strength instead of stigma and vulnerability. Mm. And see, when we change how we look at vulnerability, vulnerability, yes, to be vulnerable does mean to be, um, you know, to be open, to be kind of exposed, to be, you know, shown as being in your weaker moment. But it doesn't mean that you are weak. Mm-hmm. It just means that's the stage that you're in right now to help get you to another point. You know, and we see this throughout life. Everything in life cannot always be strong. You know, even the earth itself shows weak points and it shows where it can be very vulnerable, but then it turns around and becomes strong. I like to use the example of a forest fire. So when you look at a forest fire, it literally is so devastating that it's killing all of nature. Anything within its path, this forest fire is killing. But it's known that when that, whenever these forest fires happen, that the next forest that comes up, that sprouts up after that forest fire has happened, is usually magnificent. Mm-hmm. It's usually the most beautiful forest you'll see after the devastation. So, you know, it's, you know, it's like the calmness after the storm kind of effect. But when we change the way we look at how that narrative of machismo has affected us, then we can honestly, you know, see, well, it hasn't really done that good for us. So, and me as a, as a, as a father, one of my biggest lessons was I have all daughters. I don't have a son. Mm -hmm. I have all daughters. So when, when you're a male and, and you're, I, I had, I've gotten custody of my children. So the children lived with me, Mm -hmm. but I'm dealing with female children that, you know, I have to deal with from a male's perspective. Mm-hmm. And so now I, I have to change my way of thinking. I have to change my parenting style. I have to change everything that I thought, you know, a male or a man should be mm-hmm. to deal with these little girls. Because and, they're, you're, you are their first source of how a man should treat a woman. Absolutely. You know, and it's like, I mean, I, when you say that, I just, you know, of course I think about my dad and, it's like, yes, I, I know what a force he was in my life when it comes to my relationships now with men. You, you hit that spot on. You hit that spot on. And so a lot of men right now are raising little girls. They're, they're in their daughter's lives. And because of that, it, it forces you to use a new skill set is all I'm saying. And that's still not even an excuse because men should be even better with their life partners, whether it's a baby's mother, whether it's a wife, whether it's a girlfriend, 
these skill sets are so useful in every facet of your life to be able to um, use communication, use your own uh, life experiences and your vulnerabilities and use it as leverage to leverage yourself up to be better. And so that's my message. That's my brand right now. And be honest, I'm not saying that it's it's just for men. Mm-hmm. My message is broad. It's for everyone. You know, I've I've talked to females. I've talked to all peoples of all nationalities. I've talked to people of just color. And I find that these principles, they're just life principles. They're human principles. Mm -hmm. Everyone in every community can understand these principles. And that's how we begin to communicate even better with each other. I like to use the word emotional intelligence. When you use emotional intelligence, being able to look at issues from another's perspective, then that helps you to broaden your horizon, open your skill set to be able to say that your way is not the only way. Mm -hmm. There are other ways to look at this same issue. And, you know, maybe you learn something from someone else's perspective. You can understand how a Hindu might look at it. You can understand how, you know, a Jew might look at it. You can understand how a Muslim might look at this same issue. And now you have a lot more sensitivity. You have a lot more understanding of how to walk into this arena should you encounter any of these individuals. And one thing you were talking about vulnerability and how you get to that place, uh, being vulnerable is a risk, right? Absolutely. And then within your life, you have to take risks to get to the next level of where you need to be. Because if you don't take those risks, you're just sitting on the couch and being, you know, you're, you're not advancing your soul. You're, you're taking in what's, like you said earlier, what's coming to you without having any type of, um, part in the creation. You are so right. But you know what? I would have to go out on a limb. I'm going out on a limb. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go out on that limb. limb. (laughs) I'm going out on a limb and saying that most people are so comfortable by what status quo and by what all their influencers have told them that they are not willing to take that ownership to be able to get into the driver's seat and take ownership of their lives. And so it's so much easier to blame everyone else, right? Yes, it is. Oh, daddy made me do it. Oh, my friend told me this was best. Oh, my professor said this is what I should do. And then when it fails, you have someone to blame. Mm-hmm. You have everyone else to, to 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 put this ownership on but yourself. And so happiness doesn't lie in, in that. Happiness lies. And I mean, don't I don't want any listeners to confuse this with mentors or mentorship because there is a, a very different thin line between having a mentor and them taking you through their uh, proven experiences and their proven specialty of knowledge Mm -hmm. and exposing you to something that you've never been exposed to before. That's different. And of course, this is a path still that you are choosing when you get a mentor. I'm talking about when you have really no set clear direction about what you want. You're just going through the motions of life and whatever comes your way, you you meet a new girlfriend mm-hmm. because she likes to go to 
um, a certain store at a certain time and then she wants to watch a movie, you're like, that's what we should do. But you really don't like to do it. It really didn't sit well with you. And then you wonder why you feel the way you feel or why, you know, you're kind of being pushed over by life and why you have these experiences that you have. All of this is going to stop the minute that you say stop. Or and you, the, mo- the moment you declare, this ain't my life. There you go. There you go. <laughs> See, I learn quickly. That's right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> That's right. When you make that declaration that this ain't my life, I, I want to read something to you. Can I do that? Yeah. Yeah. I want to read something. I want I want the listeners to hear this. This this is such a profound uh, statement that's coming from the book. Whenever you are faced with something that you know is not for you, just say to yourself, this ain't my life. There's power in those words and not accepting the situation, but opening yourself up to better options. You change your way of thinking and allow for your dreams to take hold. Repeating this mantra to myself has propelled me to reach for higher heights. It gave me a way not to settle. Whatever we are faced with, the opportune time will come to accept the current circumstances or deny them. Abi used to tell me that no condition is permanent. All things are fleeting. Change is the only constant. If we embrace a condition and allow it to be a defining moment in our lives, then it will indeed define us. I refuse to be defined by any condition other than that which I desired. That's why I constantly reminded myself that this ain't my life. Wonderful. That's beautiful. So within that, I know you you also have like a vibration. Can you talk about how you see that vibration changing into the direction of what your life is? Sure. So that vibration that you're speaking about, I would even, um, I would even say that it, it, if it's my vision, it's my life purpose, my destiny. Um, all of this has to be in alignment. It's all about timing. It's all about the force that I'm working with and the message, the vision that I have for myself is to continue to be a thought leader in the space for, um, Black males, males in general, Muslims, and for those who are on a spiritual path and also, you know, to be a motivator, you know, whether people want to choose spirituality or not, it has, it's it's not even, you know, necessary. This is all about a mindset. This is all about, like you said, a feeling and just changing that mindset because not everyone is on the same level. So to, to, to think that you're going to reach everyone on all these different levels is, is, is nonsensical. So whatever level that someone is on, if they just want to go from level one to level two, or whether I'm dealing with someone on level seven, who's really high into spirituality, the reality is that whether it's myself or someone else, the more that you align yourself with your thoughts and your belief system and you enter that and you align that with your vision, that's when you begin to see that your fruits and labors will sprout. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the sprouting is to, to continue to be a motivational speaker, to continue to be a thought leader in this particular segment, 
And to use my uh, my background, which I told you my background was um, in music, um, I have a really unique niche and ability to use my music and all of what I did in the past to continue to bring new breath to this story. I'm the first author that I know of that has merged um, my music with the book. So the chapters that are in the book are actually um, related to my music chapters. So it talks about, um, from a music standpoint, it talks about what I was going through at the time that I was writing the music. And you get to see the backstory um, of, you know, my life. All of those icy things. And then if you would like, you can go to the website and actually hear the song. The chapter and the song are the same. Ooh, and nice. Yeah, I think that that is just a new way to not only um, reach readers, you know, because not everyone likes to per se read. You know, it is a very lengthy book, but it's also very animated. Um, you can you can delve into the, the audio book. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, you can listen to the music. So it allows those who are very creative, those who are millennials, those who are, you know, not so much traditional readers to be able to just lean back and still get whatever jewels and messages come from this book. I wanted to reach everyone at every aspect of their life. And I believe that um, as I continue to work this project and, and work this message, I will achieve that feat. Yes. And again, author of This Ain't My Life and CEO of Illustrious Shoes and Oramadan, Bilal Alaji. Where can we uh, find out more information? What is your website again? So the website is BilalAlaji.com. That's B-I-L-A-L-A-L-A-J-I.com. Now, I'm also, mm-hmm. I could be found on, on Twitter. That's at Alaji Bilal. And you can find me on Facebook. Fantastic. I'll, I'll hook up with you on Twitter. Bilal. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So you are, of, of course, a creative thinker, a creative entrepreneur. So you mix your music in with the music industry within your book and your, your life and who you are. Um, kind of like a soundtrack for your life, right? Your book. There you go. There you go. That's well said. I like, I like that. It's a soundtrack for my life. But in, in, in the same context, it's also, um, a way to allow readers to become a little bit more, ex- you know, they're, they're a little bit more exposed to me. So, you know, whatever they found in the book, they may find more in the music. Mm. Or whatever they found in the music, they may find more in the book. It's just a way to um, bring more breath to the story. Right. I mean, I, I when you say that, I think about this one song Prince did with, um, oh, now I cannot believe I just forgot his name. He's a great jazz musician. Um, I cannot believe I just forgot his name. Well, anyway, so there is a song and there's a guitar solo in the song. And guitar solo makes me feel about w- what exactly love 
love is, what exactly God is, because I feel there's really no vocabulary for it. And the music exemplifies what it is. And when I heard it, I was like, oh my goodness, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's that was love. such a good explanation of what, what you were trying to say. I, I, that was so spot on. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to remember that. That was, that was awesome. Ah, thank you. Because you're right. There are things in your life where words really don't measure. It doesn't measure up to the feeling, right? We, we can't really put words into a, a real feeling. And when you're talking about universe and God, that, that is really the truth. And when you feel something or you hear something or you're exposed to a memory or a vision or, you know, something that captivated you, there's something about that moment that is almost very hard to translate. It's hard to mm-hmm. personify to another human because unless they had that same experience, then it's really hard to replicate that experience. And I think that's what you're saying. So yeah. for me as a writer, I'm doing my best to replicate experiences that I went through. And so you know, I'm using an audio book. I'm using all of these tools that I have and all of the skills that I have to help personify these experiences. And, you know, my hope is that, you know, those who are reading, those who have taken the time to enter into my space and enter into my world, my life, that they will find those personifications and it will actually connect with them in a way that helps them to decide that, yes, I need to do something different for me because this character, this protagonist, he was able to do it. Mm-hmm. And if he could do it. I could do it. Can you talk about your your daughters and how you form your vocabulary around them for your learning experiences and how that translates into theirs? So I talk in a book about how um, I've learned so much from my daughters. My daughters have helped helped shape and mold me into a better man. And because I was young when I had my children, there was a lot for me to learn. You know, there was a lot for me to to kind of wrap my head around as far as, all right, you do this with men, but you really can't, you don't win this way with girls or with little women. You know, you, you have to have a whole different approach. And so, um, I also learned that even being a young parent, just as a parent, I learned Mm -hmm. that. And I'm hoping that a lot of other parents take this message with them because, um, I find that this is where a lot of parents fail. Parents, And I just, it's funny that we're talking about this because I just shared this not too long ago, a couple of days ago with another parent. And what I told the parent was that it's so important to evolve as a parent. Like we're always so focused on the evolution of our child and the evolution of our children that we forget that we also need to evolve and we need to evolve even with our parenting style, we need to evolve as a parent. So the same way you were dealing with a six-year-old, you can't use that same style for a Mm 12-year-old, you know? And I see so many parents making that mistake. You know, they're they're talking to these 12-year-olds as if they're six-year-olds. And so now you're, you're dealing with a new mind. You're dealing with a new energy that's willing to, to, um, a 12-year-old is looking to expand. 
You know, they're, they're, yep. they're doing nothing but becoming older, better, wiser, stronger. They're taking in new information. And you're kind of crippling them by keeping them in this box of a six-year-old thinker, a six-year-old attitude. Um, even emotionally, a, a 12-year-old needs to learn how to deal with failures, setbacks, decision-making. All of these things are so important that you need to be as a parent on top of so that by the time this 12-year-old becomes 18, you're already <laughs> dealing with another creature. Yes. And so that's how I was able to evolve as a parent. And I'm so blessed that I was able to learn that that life lesson that, you know, I don't deal with my children the way that I want to deal with them. I deal with them where they are. Mm -hmm. I deal with them in a space where um, they're willing to go. And so that evolution as a parent, it helped me to blossom and be able to communicate and reach my children in a way that I wasn't able to do before. And so now, you know, we, we as parents, we, you're, you're always going to see that beautiful six-year-old in, in your kid. No matter how old they get, you'll see that child in them. Mm -hmm. But you can't treat them as that child. You know, you can always have that love for them. But it's so important to to use your parenting in a way to help develop your child and also develop yourself. We learn even from our children. Our children are great teachers if you allow them to uh, to teach you. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I learn every day. My son is seven. I learn something every day from him. I'm like, wow, sometimes he blows my mind. Exactly. They're like your little mirrors. And, right. you know, they see all your flaws. They see where, where, you know, you sitting here, you write out a plan and you, you know, you're saying, well, what are my strengths and what are my weaknesses? Well, your children can tell you weaknesses with no problem. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's enough. You don't have to tell me anymore. I just needed one or two. And they're just rattling right. on and on and on and on about your weaknesses. So, you know, a lot of times we don't want to hear that. Yes. You know? It's like, I don't want to hear about all my weaknesses. You know, tell me my, my strengths. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, children are, I mean, Maybe that's why God put them here. They are the best on the planet yes. about telling adults, you know, about their shortcomings. And, you know, if for some of you who are listening who don't really like, you know, feeling that way, use the word needs improvement. So all of your needs improvement areas, your children will expose them. Mm. And, you know, it's just exactly what it is. It's just areas that you may need to improve on. And through time, you can become better. You know, it's it's all a matter of what you desire. What do you want out of that relationship? How do you desire to be with your child? And we're dealing with so many issues with children now between um, gender identification, yes. between, um, you know, uh, whether, you know, I would say life goals and people entering into into uh, workspaces that were once closed off to them and whether your child wants to be uh, a person that that works abroad. There's so many issues that we're dealing with with our children that it requires you to have an open mind. It requires you to, to really just be a good listener mm -hmm. and use your wisdom and, and your education and your life experiences to help them to make a, a better informed decision. And, you know, I would say I talk about all of these different life lessons that I learned from my children, but I would say one of my biggest that I speak about is how I fell under the premise of 
always trying to protect them and always trying to make life better for them. And I think that that was one of the worst things that I could have did. And I think that most parents from my generation have fell into that, that bad mindset. And it, I mean, it's not, I'm not saying there's, there's, there's something completely wrong with it, but I think we've taken it to the extreme where, you know, we don't even want them to get a cut on your right. knee. You know, it's just really bad. Like we're going to pad room the whole house right. and never get a scrape on your knee. And, Put them in I a mean, bubble. We, right. Yeah. We have really went to extremes. And because of that, our, the next generation, these uh, X and Z millennials, they really have a hard time with setbacks. They really have a hard time with, with um, pain. They really have a hard time with, you know, like this whole bullying phase is, is really, you know, it's a hot topic. But the more we prepare them to stand up on their own, the more we prepare them to make decisions and, and own up to their decision and face adversity, um, the more you're preparing your child for actual success because yep. they're going to blossom in a certain way regardless. And life is going to come at them regardless, whether it comes at them when you're eight or whether it comes at them when you're 18 or 28. It doesn't matter. They're going to have life. Mm-hmm. And it's just when they experience it and learn how to handle it with, you know, your help and guidance to, you know, help them learn that, you know, this is the way life works. And so for me, I had to learn like, whoa, buddy, you need to step back. You know, you can't always break their fall. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what, that was my problem. I was <laughs> always breaking their fall. And so when, when, when I would break the fall, they never really felt the fall. And then they would look at me like, oh, that didn't hurt that much. You know, what are you talking about? You know, you're over-exaggerating. So when I finally stepped back and really let them fall, then they felt the fall. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, Dad, you was right. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yo. (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah. So, you know, don't be so overprotective. Like, there have been children and humans on this planet for millions of years. (laughs) We're not doing nothing new. You know, you're not really breaking any kind of cycle. If you could look at it that way, you know, you're, you're, you're here to help guide them. And I even changed my mindset as a parent. I, I started looking at these young adults and saying, I'm their mentor. You know, mm-hmm. I'm here to just guide them. Exactly. You know, I don't really have this hardcore parenting style where it's like, you know, do as I say. And if you're not following my religion or you're not following my spiritual walk of life, you're dead to me. I don't have that perspective. I have more of a perspective where it's, you know, everyone on this planet makes their own choices. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the beauty of being a human. We have free will. We have the ability to do that which we desire. Right. And when you come into that understanding, you know, it's a universal law, it's the law of acceptance. And when you learn to accept all that humans can do by their own free will, their own power, then you begin to realize that you're just here to be kind of part of their journey. Right. That's one thing that I was doing with my son. Uh, you know, when you see your child and maybe he's rolling or trying to balance on a, a ball, a rolling ball while That's holding crazy. while holding yep. his Nintendo. 
in one hand and maybe a, a, a drink in another hand. Right. <laughs> telling a story. And then I, I'm looking at it go, oh, my gosh, I could just see him falling. And then it That's goes, right. it goes, oh, my gosh, if he goes to the hospital, it's going to cost this amount of money. There oh, my gosh. Go. <laughs> Right. Which, he's going to lose his eye. He's, he's going to have one eye for the rest of his life. Right. Yeah, I know. So, <laughs> so instead of, so I, I had to pull back and say, okay, wait a second. All right. Hey, David, what are you doing right now? What do you think could happen if you lose your balance on this, you know, rollerball? And then he explains it. He goes, but I'm fine. I said, okay, so what, what happens? So we talk through it. I said, okay, so what type of choice should you make now? What type of choice do you want to make about balancing on this rollerball? <laughs> so it's, it's building those types of, of, and of you're, thought you're teaching him how to be a better decision maker because he now knows there are choices. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just choice A jump on the ball this way. There's other things he can do with the ball. And when he begins to open his mind to be able to explore all those other options, then he'll begin to understand, wow, it's very risky to stand on a ball. Yes. In the house, holding a Nintendo. <laughs> and a cup. And a cup. <laughs> right. At seven years old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's really, he's really a, a, a really big risk taker. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> but that's the thing. You don't want to, like, you when you're talking about, okay, you you want to prevent them from getting hurt, but the, the, in that process, that stunts them and stunts their growth, and then you're you end up with a 29 year old son or daughter living in your house forever because they don't go. know how to take care of themselves. I'm telling you, I came to that realization um, when I looked at it from a, a macro perspective. I said, my generation messed up. We took so many of our parents' um, morals and values and we kind of pushed them to the side. Mm-hmm. And we thought that they weren't doing good enough or they didn't do right when all we should have did was we should have held on to a lot more of those and built upon them instead of tossing them to the side. Because, you know, my parents were all about, you know, if you want something, you got to go out there and get it. You mm-hmm. you have to, you know, there was no coddling effect and I'm going to do it for you. Now, do children need help? Yes. And we should be there to help them. You know, if, if you have a, a kid that wants to buy a bike and they're working all their little summer jobs and you can, you know, maybe pay a percentage of it with them, you know, like a 401k kind of concept. Mm-hmm. That's great. But to just go out and do it for them, that didn't help them at all. Yeah. You know, and we're in a generation now where everything with these children are being done for them. They are being catered to on such a level that is, it's, I would, I would have to, say that it's it's not productive it's (laughs) it's not in their best interest and so because of the coddling effect we're seeing a lot of new issues arise out of the children that we didn't see before we didn't we didn't see all of these um all of these issues that are arising Mm -hmm. and i think that once we kind of scale back a little bit realize that there were a lot of good things that came out of you know the parenting that we grew up with you know, the ones that we we didn't need, we take that, we throw it away. But the ones that were good, that really helped us to form a really good, you know, um, 
formulation of who we are in this world, those things need to be passed down. It needs to be somewhat generational for the success of these millennials and, and children even beyond the millennial generation. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And uh, before I let you go, you're going to be in L.A. soon. I am. Tell us about that. So um, I've been invited to um, a writer's conference in March in L.A., and I'm going to be a panelist. And what I'm going to be talking about is, um, of course, my memoir, but more so um, in the aspect of creating characters and how the characters and, you know, being vulnerable, how much of that you should do and how you can create that in a way to, um, you know, kind of connect with the reader. And so um, there's another panel I'm going to be on too, but I, I can't remember off the top of my head which which one that's about. But yeah, I'm going to be uh, really sharing, um, you know, from my my abilities and my experiences, how to help other writers, um, you know, achieve this feat with their their memoirs and their books. Fantastic. And again, how can we get your book and uh, find out more about you? So the book is available on Amazon. It's, uh, again, available in all formats. So if you're an ebook reader, gotcha. Audiobook, gotcha. <laughs> Hardcover, softcover, we got you covered. <laughs> Get your reading. <laughs> right. And, um, it's also available on the website. You want to go to www.bilawalaji.com. And I want to also implore you to check out the music. There's merchandise there, too. I didn't mention that. What? what? Yes, you can get shirts and mugs. So I really want, I wanted anyone who, who really resonated with this, this ain't my life concept. I wanted them to say it broadly and loudly. And, you know, go out, go to the gym, wear the shirt, you know, just, just, Get into the experience. If you at, you're a coffee drinker, go to work and, and constantly just look at this mug and say, this ain't my life until you get that which you want. I mean, I'm really going very hard with the lifestyle and the branding of this message. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's why it's in every every facet. I've, um, I'm going to be in a magazine for February. I'm going to be uh, reviewed by Publishers Weekly. I have a lot of speaking engagements coming up at the library. My book is actually going to be um, in the New York Public Library system. Um, it's won an award through, uh, for for best memoir of 2019 full, and there's you know possibly some more awards coming in 2020. I'm just so excited about uh, how this book is translating with those who are reading it. I've, I have wonderful reviews from people of all walks of life. Um, I was just uh, issued in this month's um, Islamic Horizon magazine. I was also, um, I mean, just the reviews from middle-class Americans. I have people from Montana, Iowa, Wyoming, Washington who have wrote reviews. And it's just been an eye-opener for people of all walks of life, all faiths. And they all have mentioned how this book has resonated so deeply Uh, with them and helped them to come out of the way that they were thinking. And I just want to continue to share this message with with the world. Well, thank you. I'm so glad you got to share it with our community. And uh, thank you for all the work that you're doing to help save lives. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Yes. 
Bilal Alaji, and CEO of Illustrious Shoes and Oramadan. Slipper and Cusack, 710 ESPN. This kid named Lucky. You've been listening to The Experience with Laferne Cusack. Getting the residents of Los Angeles, Orange County, and all of Southern California closer to their community. It's The Experience with Laferne Cusack on 710 ESPN.